Freedom and Captivity podcast, an abolitionist podcast for Maine. We are coming to you from the Portland Media Center in Portland, Maine, uh, where we're being assisted by Josh Riddle, who is the sound engineer. And our uh, episodes are opened and closed with the wonderful music of Samuel James. Today, we're going to be talking with Winifred Tate, professor of anthropology at Colby College and director of the Maine Drug Policy Lab at Colby College. Winifred is going to be interviewing and, and talking with Courtney Allen, who is the policy director of the Maine Recovery Advocacy Project, also known as MIRAP. They're gonna be talking about alternatives to incarceration that focus on harm reduction rather than punishment, especially in the arena of drug policy. Uh, so I will turn the program over to Winifred, who will be uh, conversing with Courtney, uh, and I'll come back at the end and, and thank them both. Winifred? Thank you, Catherine, and thank you, Courtney, so much for being here today with me. I've learned so much from you in the past couple of years, and I'm really excited for this opportunity to talk with you today. Um, so I thought we could start off with you explaining a little bit about the Maine Recovery Advocacy Project, how it started here, who's participating, and um, just kind of give us a general sense of your work. Thanks, Winifred. It's always nice to organize with you and all the work that we've done together over the last couple of years. And uh, as, as mentioned, my name is Courtney Allen. I am the policy director for the Maine Recovery Advocacy Project. And the MIRAP is actually a grassroots movement across the state of Maine of people in recovery, people who use drugs, our family members, and all of our allies across the state. Our community is really a diverse makeup of people who care about um, reimagining and redefining justice, access, connection, and recovery. And we do that through um, a lot of different ways. And one of those ways is through the restructuring of drug sentencing laws and ensuring that people um, in our community have an active voice in state and local policy making decisions. So one of the things that really impressed me um, this legislative season is, first of all, working on Zoom, obviously, but it gave me a real sense of kind of the range of people participating from across the state. So we would have people from Machias, as well as people who are incarcerated. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what it means to bring all these people together in this space. Yeah, so it has been a really cool session. And, you know, there's a lot of things that happen because of COVID that um, have been hard for folks. But one of the really bright lights is that we've all gone online. And so we have access to folks uh, in the recovery advocacy movement that live in rural communities. Um, way up in Machias and all the way down to York County, people are engaging in a conversation about what it means to use substances and be in recovery, as well as women who are currently incarcerated um, are residents at the, the Women's Reentry Center in Wyndham. And, you know, I'm, I'm grateful to the Department of Corrections for helping to ensure that their voices can be heard in this process. So the way that we came up with the things that, you know, we're advocating for is really listening. That is our core organizing principle is that we listen to the grassroots and to people who have been affected by these policies for decades. Um, and some of those people are people who are incarcerated uh, and um, so these women were deeply engaged with us through um, November. We started the project in November together. 
and started with community listening sessions in which we we really just listened um, to what the problems people are facing on the ground in regards to the opiate crisis are. And so the women on the inside were there with us during that time. And then we started to bring on organizers and they they wanted to engage with us at the organizing level to help us take those things that we heard at the grassroots level into our statewide platform. And, you know, having their voice involved in this policymaking is so important because as I, I am a person in recovery, but I'm not a person who has experienced incarceration. And what we know is that people who are closest to the problem are closest to the solution and that we should be listening um, to what they say they need and helping to ensure that those voices are at the table. Um, they've also been able to, the department does not allow them, uh, the women from the inside or anyone from the inside uh, to engage in testimony um, proactively, like during the, the hearing sessions. But what we have been able to negotiate is that um, they get to mail us their testimony on the bills that they they care about. And then um, some of the interns at Colby uh, for the main drug policy lab have been reading their testimonies to the committees about the bills that they care about. And that's really impactful because those voices are not heard uh, in our systems. And so I've really enjoyed this process of learning um, with people who are currently incarcerated, but also, you know, a lot of the people who are, are, are home now but who have experienced incarceration um, have never had a chance uh, to be involved with the policymaking. So a lot of our folks in our organizing and our networks have those experiences. And it's just been, it's been really wonderful to see them engaging. Yeah, it's been a phenomenal process, um, <clears throat> this legislative session. Um, so I think everyone involved in MIRAP um, should get a round of congratulations for that work. Um, so can you talk a little bit about um, what came out of those listening sessions, um, what the priorities are for MIRAP, maybe not just about this legislative session, but over the next couple of years? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the surprising things, um, I've worked, I've cared uh, passionately about drug policy reform in my own um, advocacy journey for, for many years now. But as I took this position, you know, we're called the main recovery advocacy project, right? And so at the, at the greater, wider level, often what we've seen the recovery advocacy movement advocating for is really, you know, recovery support services, language changes around um, substance use disorder and not calling us addicts. We really don't like that. Um, and so like we've been we've been having this wonderful conversation where we, you know, people in recovery are starting to come out um, publicly about their recovery process. But I didn't expect uh, the recovery community to be talking about true drug policy reform. Um, and I was and I was wrong. I was very wrong. Um, inside of those listening sessions, in every single one of our listening sessions, people talked about how they did not want to be criminalized for their substance use anymore. Um, they talked about 
restructuring drug sentencing laws. And they talked about the Oregon movement to decriminalize possession of substances and and refocus on treatment and recovery support services. And they talked about a lot of other things too. They talked about um, expanding recovery community support services. And um, so we have four pillars, justice, access, connection, and recovery now from those conversations. So one of the things that's really, I think, shifted in the last couple of years, or even maybe even the last year in Maine is this vision of how to address what everyone agrees is a real pressing issue of um, people with substance use disorder who want different options and shifting away. You know, here all the time, you can't arrest your way out of this, this problem. Um, So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the impact of criminalization on people who use drugs and people who have substance use disorder and what it means to think in a different way about um, options and supports. Yeah, absolutely. That has been, that's become the rhetoric on the front lines of the opiate crisis and, uh, and addiction crisis in general. We can't arrest our way out of this, right? You know, recovery advocates have said it, police law enforcement, public health officials, our governor, everybody involved in this conversation is talking about we can't arrest our way out of this. But we still continue to try to arrest our way out of this. Like it's it's this it's this contradictory thing where we talk about we can't do this, but we still try. We're still using the criminal justice system as if it was a public health system and it is not. Um, in 2018, we arrested over 1,800 Mainers for simple drug possession. Um, and what we know about substance use disorder, you know, that's one of the other things that we're always talking about is that substance use disorder is a disease. And everybody likes to say that in the public eye. Um, but what we know about substance use disorder is that one of the symptoms of it is that people must use drugs, Right. And uh, they often use them chaotically. It's uh, right in the criteria. And so in the state of Maine, though, the simple possession of small quantities of substances is a crime. And uh, by small quantities, I want everybody that is listening to understand what that means. Small quantities in our our legislation means under 0.2 grams of heroin. And... uh, being somebody who has been on the front lines for a long time and somebody who used to actively use drugs as well, I can tell you for absolute certain that people with a substance use disorder are using well more than 1.2 grams of heroin a day. Um, And so they're being criminalized literally for a symptom of their disease that we all agree um, is a disease. And so that was one of the major things that we talked about in the listening session is wanting to flip that on its, on its, on its head, right? Like if we all agree on these things, then why are we still doing, uh, why are we still putting folks in jail uh, for this, for this symptom of their disease? Um, And so we, we talked a lot, we, we've been working on that bill, this legislative session, um, which would make it so that folks who are um, who have possession of small quantities of substances would, instead of being put in jail uh, for for X amount of time, they would be offered um, a health assessment um, and and any referrals to necessary resources that 
that health assessment determines um, they need or a $100 fine. And the reason why we support that is because it gets to the core that substance use disorder is not a crime and that we should be, we should be um, realigning all of our approaches to the public health um, folks. And, you know, for folks in recovery who have experienced criminalization, it's not just something, it is something that changes who you are on the inside. Like you, you end up with like this stigmatizing self view sometimes that creates a barrier all within itself. Um, but also the world sees you very differently. Um, they see you as a criminal, not as somebody who is um, not well and needs access to healthcare services, but it also creates real world barriers, right? So in the recovery community, we know that recovery is built on four pillars. This is from the SAMHSA administration. They talk about the four pillars of recovery a lot. Um, and those four pillars are health, home, purpose, and community. So people who um, are in or seeking recovery need access to healthcare services, um, a safe and stable home. Purpose is a, a meaningful reason to get up every morning and then participate in their community and community. So access to healthy, uh, strong bonds with people around them, um, whether that's family or friends or coworkers. And, you know, those are the same exact things that uh, incarceration demolishes, right? Because somebody, while on the inside, people do not have access to um, healthcare services in the same way that you or I do. Um, they definitely, it's not a home. It's not safe and stable. Um, they have no access to purpose or community. It's like complete, um, completely takes them out of our natural environment in which we know that recovery can grow and sustain itself. So, so that, so we're doing the exact opposite. People say they want to put people in jail for substance use so that they can get better somehow, but it's exactly the opposite of what the, what the science tells us and what the recovery community is telling us um, that they need uh, to enter and sustain recovery. Yeah, one of the things that I've seen a lot in this work is just how tremendously devastating being incarcerated is. So hearing stories of people about what they lost while they were incarcerated um, and what how traumatizing and difficult the experience of incarceration was. And one of the most shocking things to me is hearing um, people who say that being incarcerated is, is somehow helping people or it's an opportunity for people to get access to stability and services that they wouldn't otherwise get. Um, so I was wondering if you, yeah, just think about that. If you have any thoughts. You know, incarceration is not treatment. I think that's a, that's what you're getting at there. Incarceration destabilizes an individual's life, including their housing, healthcare, employment, and social connectedness. And even in brief in periods of incarceration uh, lead to adverse consequences, including, you know, folks lose their job. If somebody has to go to jail for a couple of days, they 
could be fired from their job our, our future employment opportunities. We have on all of our, many of our um, job applications, have you ever been convicted of a crime, right? And when somebody checks that box, often that, that uh, resume kind of gets put to the bottom um, over, over a symptom of their disease when we're talking about uh, possession of small quantities of substances. They also, um, once in the criminal justice system, people with an active substance use disorder who have been in treatment already often lose access to those treatment services during that, that change in uh, environment, right? So if somebody, this, this is a kind of a story that I hear a lot on the ground is that somebody is in treatment on Suboxone, MAT, right? And so they have a resumption of use uh, or relapse, many people would call it. And they're also on probation. And so they go to their probation officer and they say, hey, probation officer, you know, I resumed use. And inside their probation is uh, a um, condition that they can't use drugs. And so some probation officers will send them to jail. And inside the jail, they have policies that say that if you're on Suboxone, you have a prescription of Suboxone and you come to the jail and you can clean, you can pee clean or provide a, uh, provide a negative drug screening, then you can have your Suboxone script and only then. But what happens to that person who is then being sent to jail because they had a resumption of use and are on probation, they can't provide that negative drug screening, right? Because that's why they're being sent there. And so they don't get access to that um, medication assisted treatment on the inside. And it destabilizes that that period of treatment services, people need to be on that medication continuously for it to have the effects on their brain that uh, we want it to have. And so then we're just in a cycle of tornado, right? Where they get out, they can't get back into the doctor, and then they're actively using substances because uh, they can't have their medication. And we also know that when people leave incarceration, they're at a higher risk for overdose because of lower tolerance. And so we see a lot of folks overdosing after they leave um, periods of incarceration. And in 2000 and this last year, last year, we lost 500 plus people to an accidental overdose in the state of Maine. In 2020, we lost 500 people in Maine to accidental overdose. This week alone, we're going to lose 11 people. 11 Mainers will be lost to accidental overdose this week. You know, we talk a lot about like, we need to arrest people, we need to put them in jail. We've been doing that for 50 years, and it's not working. It's not working. Our numbers continually increase and increase and increase of folks who are being lost. And we've got to build a new system. We've just got to do it. Um, I know that change is hard and Maine doesn't, doesn't turn on a dime. But what we're doing isn't working and we all know it you know we're hearing in the in the um the public hearings around around these these efforts to change drug sentencing laws 
the attorney general agrees. He said it right in the meeting. He said, what we're doing is not working, but then refuses uh, to do something different. And so for me, this is really simple. This is a black and white issue. We know we're not doing what we're doing is not working, so we should do something now. So you ended really strongly on this notion of we need a new um, that, that we know this doesn't work and we need a new approach. So can you talk about um, what kinds of investments and resources and communities um, you'd like to see to make that happen? Yeah, so one of MIRAP's priorities um, this session and moving on uh, throughout the, the years to come is that we are we're asking for a recovery community organization in every county in Maine. And so a recovery community organization, it's really a space. It's a home uh, for the recovery community. And so in that, in that home, in that space, we provide recovery support services, uh, recovery coaching, which is kind of like peer, peer one-on-one people with lived experience, helping people walk through the process of recovery as well as like pro-social events. Um, so like fun things to do in the community. And really, it's really about a place that folks can come without judgment and where there is community and culture together. And so right now across the state of Maine, there's um, there's 13 recovery community centers and um, there's seven counties that don't currently have one. And so we, we put in a bill this legislative session um, to fund those seven recovery community organizations um, in those seven counties. And there was hours of testimony in favor, nobody against. And uh, we ended up having to strip the funding out of the bill because there was no money. You know, we get told, we always get told there's no money um, to fund these services but we're we're funneling money into the criminal justice system more and more each budget season when we know that that doesn't work so so we need we need recovery community organizations we also need a a, a mass investment in harm reduction right and cuz cuz the reality is that sometimes that people are going to use drugs Right. And that's hard for some people to hear and to understand. But but people have been using substances since the dawn of time. Right. And we've tried criminalization. We tried it with alcohol. We tried it with alcohol uh, and it didn't work. And we changed our policies um, around that. And so. Yeah, we need we need to invest in harm reduction. And why 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 is somebody in recovery talking about harm reduction, right? Don't I want people uh, to stop using drugs and get into this into the recovery? And the answer is no. I want people to stay alive, and I want people to be as well as they as they can be, and they want to be, and I want them to be happy and whole, um, and I want them to be safe because I love people. Uh, in recovery and people who use drugs. And so, you know, the recovery movement doesn't exist without people who are using drugs and we are dependent on one another and we must support um, all versions of the recovery process because recovery really is just about, um, 
just about change. It's about learning to live a self-directed life um, and having autonomy and choice around around our substance use and in, uh, in, in our recovery. That's so beautiful. Thank you um, for those that vision. Um, one of the things that I've heard a lot is the idea of all pathways to recovery and that people um, can really define and make choices for themselves. And that seems so central um, to the work that you guys are doing and so central to this project. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the national process and how the national recovery movement is linked to the work that you're doing and how that's evolving and changing. Yeah, really quickly, though, I also want to go back to that other question you were talking about what we need um, to invest in community in we don't have any detoxes. So that's what people are using jails for right now. They're putting people in the jails because they're afraid um, of overdoses or because uh, they can't get access to treatment support outside of the jails. And we literally don't have any detoxes. Like if somebody was to come to me today um, I that wanted to uh, enter a detox service program, I would have a really hard time. Why don't we have detox on demand? Um, yeah. So I just wanted to raise that, uh, folks need to be able to access detox services. Um, so at the national level, so we have the recovery advocacy project at the national level. Um, we're, we're, uh, a networked with them. The thing I love most about the Recovery Advocacy Project, though, at the national level is that they have no agenda. You know, I've worked with organizations at the national level who kind of swoop into the state of Maine and say, hey, state of Maine and recovery advocacy movement inside the state of Maine. Um, here's what you're going to be advocating for. Uh, and that is exactly opposite of what we do at the Recovery Advocacy Project. Um, our national organization's only mission is to ensure that folks on the ground have the tools that they need to advocate for what their community needs. Um, and that gets back to our, our core organized principle of le listening uh, to the grassroots and ensuring that their voices are heard. Um, kind of on the topic of the recovery advocacy movement as a, as a history you know, especially in the state of Maine, we've had um, recovery advocates, wonderful, passionate recovery advocates. And I, you know who I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of Jesse Harvey, um, who led our movement for many years, um, my dear friend. And uh, when I was first starting uh, in recovery advocacy, he was, he was first starting as well. And he, he grew into this larger than life um, human. He worked diligently to ensure that people had what they needed when they needed it. And he also got kind of put up on this pedestal and he was human like the rest of us. And, you know, when he, when he experienced it, hardship in his life, people ran away from that because they thought that Jesse was supposed to be perfect or something 
I'm not really sure. Um, but he ended up overdosing and we lost him last year in, uh, in September, I believe. And, you know, I think about that a lot when I'm organizing with people, um, on the ground. I think about Jesse a lot because no one person can hold the weight of all of the change that we need to make together. And we talk a lot now about stewardship and ensuring that, you know, this movement, this, this, this ask for change and for treating us uh, better at the policy level is a collective movement. And we are all responsible uh, for it. And we're all just kind of servants to this, to this greater, um, greater desire for change because no one person can be the leader, especially in this community. Yeah, I think about that a lot. And I think about him as well. And the work that Jesse did that was so creative and inspiring and taking people out of this kind of stigmatizing, criminalizing mindset. Um, He founded, among his many other things that he did was he founded the Church of Safe Injection and this idea that um, when God asks you to love people, then you need to love them (laughs) and how fundamental that can be in changing the way some people think about people who use drugs. Um, But it also reminds us of the need to think about this as advocacy, not just for other people, but also for ourselves and taking care of ourselves and each other and what that means um, as in an advocacy movement that can often be really stressful and ask a lot of people um, in public and as public figures. Yeah, you know, I one time I had an organizer say to me that organizing should be like a, like a choir you know in a choir when people are singing together one voice can kind of fall off and the song keeps going they can they can take a breath and the song keeps going and so I think that's that's the type of recovery advocacy movement that we need um to create in the state of Maine in the United States and in the world so that you know, we can all take a break in this work and the work continues. The song continues. So thinking about the ways in which that work goes on, one of the things that has inspired certainly me, um, but is looking at examples of the work being done in other places. So thinking about Oregon and Portugal and, um, Uruguay and other places where people have are further a little bit further down this road of reimagining what communities can be and community response to people who use drugs can be. Um, so I don't know if you have any thoughts about how what lessons or how those places and experiences have um, what opportunities they might open up for people in Maine. I mean, Portugal decriminalized substances, what, like, I don't know, 20 years ago now? And they had 2000. (laughs) 2000? Is it? Yeah, 20, 21 years ago. Like, 
where are we at, Maine? Where are we at, United <laughs> States? Um, we just keep holding on to things that aren't working. Um, yeah, but on a serious note, Portugal did. They decriminalized substances 21 years ago. And at that time, they had the same type of overdoses that we had, high rates of overdoses. And they decriminalized substances. They connected people with uh, treatment and healthcare services and job opportunities and, you know, all of the things that we know are the pillars of recovery and, and their overdoses went down. They have low rates of overdoses. I was looking um, at the most recent reporting and they were like, we're very concerned that our rate has gone up to a total of nine overdose deaths last year for the entire country. For the entire country. That's we're losing 11 Mainers a week in the state of Maine. So thinking also, I mean, I know a lot of people are looking to Oregon. So Oregon's a state that has shifted. I think you talked earlier, shifting to um, connecting people with health services. But one of the things I think that's also really important when we think about this is that these are not efforts to force people to do things. They're efforts to create opportunities, right? And I was um, listening to one person talk and, and reflect on the idea that we can force people to become better. It's such a strange notion, um, but rather that we can create space and opportunity and support when people are ready. I mean, I don't know if you wanna go down this road. I just think it's really interesting to think about who's trying to force who in this world. And so all of these people who think um, that, you know, in the judicial system or in positions of authority that they can force people into recovery um, without really understanding the challenges that people face without creating opportunities and support. And um, to me, that notion of, control and forcing people into things is so misguided and, and so counterproductive. Um, so a central part of your vision, is that, as you said, is that the people who are closest to the problem are closest to the solution. And that's one of the core tenets of your organizing. And it's one of the reasons why it's so important um, that people who are in recovery and people use drugs are listened to and weigh in on these pressing social issues. So I was wondering if you could talk about the process of um, how people come to recognize their own expertise and feel comfortable weighing in on these um, policy debates. Yeah, so that has been, a, that's a process for folks, right? For so long, for so long, this, my community, um, the recovery community, and especially people who are currently using drugs, have been excluded uh, from public discourse. They've never been provided opportunities uh, to engage, let alone been asked to engage. Um, and so often when I go to somebody and I'm like, hey, you want to like go testify at the legislature? They're like, my voice, what, what? Um because they don't know that their voice matters. And it does. It, it's so powerful to watch people tell their stories about um, how policies have affected 
their lives. And so that's, that's the really core organizing work that we've been doing is teaching uh, the recovery community that their voices are powerful um, and that they, they have a right to be within the process. And, you know, there's, there's some really hard moments while we've been in committee, you know, we were working on a language bill and, when I was, when I was working with a representative who'd put this bill in, honestly, I thought that it was going to be one of our easier bills. I mean, the bill really, the core of it is that we asked the state to change the statues instead of saying inmate throughout the statue, we say resident and the department of corrections has already started this process. Um, and it's really grounded in this idea that when you call somebody something, uh, words have immense power. Words have immense power to wound or heal. Um, and uh, we we don't want to be using stigmatizing language like inmate or addict. Um, but this bill, this bill was about uh, inmates uh, and changing language. And the representative um, presented the bill to the committee and this woman, uh, a representative who I'm not going to name, she said, but wait, isn't that what they are? They're convicts and they're they're terrible. Pretty much she was like calling us terrible human beings. And like my organizers were on the line. My team members were listening to that. And like it hit me like a ton of bricks that I know that stigma is still alive, but I am so proud of my recovery identity that it doesn't affect me in my day-to-day life. But that hit us like a ton of bricks, you know, and, and the women on the inside were listening and on the hearing and, you know, they sent me an email afterwards and they were like, Hey, like that was really terrible. And I'm like, yeah, I know, I know, you know, they're, they're human beings and these women are amazing what they're doing uh, while being residents at the the women's reentry center. They're in college. They're organizing with the main recovery advocacy project. She started her own nonprofit. Like we're not talking about like some terrible, I don't, I don't even know what people think are happening uh, in, in these, these places of, of, incarceration for for her and I don't know I just have a deep compassionate love for all human beings and and uh the world does not some days and we we should like I yeah yeah I was um listening in that hearing and it was it was a rough moment um and it was I remember talking to people about that afterwards so it's clear there's a lot of work to be done still and that some people are not in the place yet where they can hear and receive those messages. Um, So do you have anything else that you would like to share? Anything that I missed asking about? You know, I think the bottom line is that substance use is a treatable, chronic, progressive, and sometimes fatal illness. It is not a crime. Um, and that we need to recognize that and change our policies, uh, to match it. Yeah. That's the basic (laughs) thing that needs to change for sure. 
Well, thank you so much, Courtney, for sharing um, so much of your experience and your insights uh, with us today. Um, your work is so inspiring and I really urge really everyone in Maine should be part of the Maine Recovery Advocacy Project if you support these ideas. Um, get in touch with Courtney because they're doing amazing work. Thank you both so much. Courtney Allen of the Maine Recovery Advocacy Project, Winifred Tate of the Maine Drug Policy Lab at Colby College. Uh, words of wisdom and, uh, and thank you for closing with, with an invitation um, to allies, to folks who are, are moved um, and educated by uh, the wisdom that you shared with us today. Uh, listeners do get involved. This is really about all of us. It's really about, as Courtney said so beautifully, loving each other and building building the kind of community that, that keeps people safe, um, which is, I think, what we all actually want. Uh, so thanks, thanks so much to, to both of you um, for taking an hour out of this busy legislative season to, to talk with us. Uh, next week, we're going to be continuing with the theme of alternatives to incarceration. Um, the sorts of uh, ways that we can build harm reduction in place of punishment. Um, and so next week, we're going to be talking with Bruce King, who is the co-executive director of Maine Inside Out, Kels Park, who is the former policy and community advocacy coordinator of, of the Restorative Justice Institute of Maine, Laura Ligori, who is the founder and executive director of MindBridge, and Leo Hilton, who is the executive secretary of the Maine State Prison Branch of the NAACP and a columnist from Mainer. Join us next week to continue this conversation. Again, this is the Freedom and Captivity podcast sponsored by the Portland Media Center with Josh Riddle as our sound engineer and, uh, and graced by the music of Samuel James. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>